awesome educational episode this week. We bring you Andrew Idleman, who's an attorney, who's an expert in FDA-regulated businesses. I know Andy very well. We traveled together. We've been in a lot of our uh, uh, shows across the country, specifically in the orthobiologic space. He's an absolute expert on explaining what's chill and what is not, what's kosher, what is not in the space of orthobiologics. You got to be really careful here. The FDA is really pushing now. Attorney generals from states are looking into this for false claims. If you're going to do orthobiologics, which I believe in, you have to make sure you're transparent, giving appropriate claims and testimonials. Andy does an amazing job really breaking down what you can and can't say, what's cool and what's not. I know you're going to love this episode. Hashtag follow the fro. This week's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is sponsored by Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. Our national expansion is ramping up at this time. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery has listed laser on the recommended list for the treatment of osteoarthritis of the knee. Really across the country at this point, doctors as well as uh, business uh, people alike are fascinated by the pro forma of the Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Center. We're thrilled to be able to offer laser to our local communities as an opioid alternative treatment for pain and inflammation www.ortholaser.com. That's www.ortholaser.com. Come and join the family. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, it's Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. We're going to take another little pivot this week. I really like sometimes to bring in some uh, interesting uh, people that are just on the fringe, perhaps of orthopedics, but not necessarily orthopedic surgeons. That's exactly who we have today. We have attorney Andrew Idleman, who is a partner at First Idleman, David and Joseph in Miami. You know, I, I love the opportunity to be able to speak to a high-powered attorney and know I'm not paying for it. Andrew, it is a pleasure <laughs> to have you on the show. <laughs> pleasure being here. Thank you. No, that's awesome. So, you know, the, the reason we've been hanging out a lot together, we've been at a bunch of conferences lately, and you know, right. you're, an, you're an attorney as an expert that really is in the FDA-regulated businesses, and I think there's something in there about money laundering. Maybe we'll get to that at the <laughs> end, but, uh, sure. you know, really, we're going to ask you really about your expertise and in orthobiologics, in that space in particular, which is really a, a complicated process for most orthopedic surgeons, what can you say? What can't you say? What's on label? What's off label? You know, how, why can't people get paid for this? Why do we have to, why do people have to pay out of pocket? Why don't the insurance, all that stuff. So I want to, I just want to, you know, just go rolling back and forth with you here and get an answer and, and some ideas. So let's start with something really simple. Okay. Let's start with a four letter word that starts with S, which we can't really use right now. And that's stem cells. Mm. So, so what what are the indications for orthopedics and stem cells right now in the United States of America? Well, there are there are really there aren't really any indications. Um, you know, in, indications assumes that there's some kind of a FDA approval that's out there that these products have been submitted to FDA and FDA has approved the products for use in a specific procedure, and when they do those approvals, they approve the labeling, they approve the indications, things like that. Um, you know, to the extent that these types of procedures are allowed in the United States, 
typically there is a um, there's regulatory exemptions that are available that allow doctors to you know use autologous tissue to treat their patients' uh, musculoskeletal injuries, um, and we find those. Uh, exemptions in different parts of the FDA's regulations. And so calling it an indication is a little bit, um, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit of an awkward fit simply because there's no FDA approval there or no approved indication. Um, but again, there is these, you know, there are these exemptions that are important that allow doctors to use their patient's tissue to treat the patients under certain circumstances. We can't, in most instances, take a patient's cells and culture expand them. Um, you know, right, there slow, are- slow, slow down, slow down. You've okay. got a lot of really great information in there and I want to make Go sure ahead. that every, everybody understands it. So I want to be perfectly clear about something though. It's like, so Dr. X out in Los Angeles is an orthobiologic specialist and right across on their website, it says, we use stem cells to treat osteoarthritis of the knee. And so right. can we explain to our viewers how that's not kosher? Well, it's, it's, it's just risky um, simply because it's, it's vague. And the vagueness in this type of environment can be, um, you know, it, it, it can create risk simply because it creates questions. Again, there are certain types of quote unquote stem cell procedures that are allowed, even though they're not necessarily stem cell procedures. Uh, and then there are those that clearly aren't. And if we are using one of these procedures that we're comfortable with because it's, we've vetted it, we've had a lawyer vet it, but we're still calling it a stem cell procedure. And that's what you know, customers and potentially FDA uh, are, are seeing on our website. Um, you know, that, that can cause questions. And, and that's the type of uh, vague language where we may receive correspondence from FDA saying, tell us what you're doing so that we can evaluate it because we can't tell by just looking at the website. Um, and, and that's, the, I think, the primary problem with stem cells um, at this juncture, um, you know, particularly it, when we're talking about autologous tissue. Um, there's other types of quote-unquote stem cell products as well that are allogeneic, um, and those are, in most instances, uh, not going to be allowed. Okay, so, so, all right, so counselor, let's go back. <laughs> so, right, okay. So, so autologous, so everybody understands, because so, my mother Judy's listening, means okay. we take it from you, it comes from yourself, and then we put it into someplace else. And I guess there's some terminology, it has to be minimally manipulated, and for homologous use, which means, again, you can't play with it, you can't add stuff, you can't culture it, grow it, and give it to other people, it can only be used for that individual from which it comes. Right. Right. And, and I think a good way of understanding things on the autologous side, which, as you explained, means cells or tissue from a patient going back into that same patient. Really, what FDA is looking for is, is the doctor creating something that's new, either in terms of the manufacturing of this thing or the way that we're using it. So if I take your, your fat or your bone marrow and I completely change it into something else. I turn it into, you know, on the fat side, a cellular pellet, something that, that didn't exist before. Or if I'm using that fat in a way that where, where fat is never used uh, originally prior to the time that it's been removed from the patient, 
FDA is typically going to look at those things and say, that's new. And to the extent that that's new, we want to understand it better. And that's why we get into that, you know, that, that, that drug category for products like that. Again, either in terms of the manufacturing or the way that we're using it, or in certain instances, simply based on the way that we're describing it. All of those things can lead to that much higher uh, regulatory burden. Okay. So there are ways in which doctors can use tissue from an individual patient and then put it back into them. Now, now here's the thing. This is, this is the tricky part that, that I think a lot of doctors get tripped up on. Let's just talk about PRP for a second. Okay. Platelet-rich plasma. You draw blood from somebody's arm. You spin it down in a centrifuge. You get this layer where the platelets are. It has these magical growth factors in it. You take those out, put it in a syringe, and then you inject it into somebody. But specifically, the on-label use from the FDA for the use of PRP is exactly what? There is no on-label use of PRP because it's not an approved product. In, in order for there to be on-label or off-label, there needs to be an approved label. And we don't necessarily have that. So that's, that's another issue that's very often misunderstood in this space is the concept of off-label. We don't really have off-label or on-label until we have a product approval. Great um, point. So, but in, in, in this environment, uh, the FDA's regulations provide that if a doctor is manufacturing a blood product for use in his own practice, then that blood product in all likelihood will not be subject to FDA regulation. The problem though, is that if we break down that blood product too far, if we cell select from the blood and then cultures, culture expand those cells, that could be a new product. Um, and again, if, if we're advertising that PRP procedure in such a way that raises questions, it's activated PRP or all sorts of this exotic language that we can use about it. All of that can really, um, you know, create confusion for what should be fairly straightforward, which again is this, the, uh, the, the blood product that the doctor makes for use in his own practice. Typically, that's going to be, you know, the, the, the practice of medicine not regulated by the FDA. Okay, and, and that these are all great points, and I want to go back to PRP, because PRP maybe doesn't have an on-label, off-label, but it does have an indication, correct? PRP is, is you can put it into a, a bone graft and then use that. So that's what it was designed for, to enhance a bone graft. So it has an well, indication. PRP is, is used in lots of different uh, types of medical practice. It's used in for if dentists use it. Uh, orthopedists use it. It's used in cosmetic procedures and aesthetic procedures. And all of those, to the extent that they're being performed by a, a licensed physician, are going to be okay. And we don't really need to get into this analysis of whether it's on-label, off-label, et cetera. Blood enjoys sort of a, a little bit of a different um, regulatory treatment by FDA than does fat and bone marrow. Uh, Etc. Those those are a little bit more complicated, but again, still, even in those instances, there's plenty of room for physicians uh, to work. Right, and so so, so I, I still want to I'm going to harp back harp on PRP one more time because I want to make sure that everybody understands. So so you can, so it was designed to use in, to to sort of augment uh, this procedure, but you as a physician 
can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your patient to say, look, it's this PRP was designed for this purpose. There's been many studies that have shown, for example, with tennis elbow, that PRP has been, you know, efficacious for the use in tennis elbow. Therefore, because I've reviewed the literature, I think this is a reasonable thing to do for you. Please sign consent for this. And then that you can then use the PRP for that process. But that's different than the FDA saying, okay, PRP is now indicated for the use of lateral epicondylitis. And then Medicare comes out and says, we're going to give you a CPT code so the insurance company will pay for it. So, so all of this orthobiologic stuff is sort of stuck in this gray area where, where there's regulatory concern, you can use most of it, and then the patient has to pay for it. So right. it's, it's just a weird spot. It's just hard for it to sort of generate the traction to get going. Yeah. Well, I think that's sort of, that's the nature of the beast. Um, again, it's, and, and I think a lot of that flows from the way that FDA decided to regulate in this environment in the first place. Um, and that was something that was hotly contested uh, between the industry and FDA early on, specifically as it relates to autologous, because you know, simply based on the way that these autologous procedures occur, it's unlikely that uh, that's going to be the subject of uh, an FDA uh, approval application. Um, typically, when we have approved products, there's standardization on the manufacturing side. And, you know, every single product that comes out is going to be identical. That's what it's designed for. But the problem with autologous, especially, is that you can't really establish that because I'm different than you. And by nature, my tissue and whatever is going to be extracted from me is going to be different from, from, from what's going to be extracted uh, from you, et cetera. And so um, it makes the process of FDA approval a little bit unrealistic. And at the same time, um, it, the, the, the cost that needs to go into uh, an FDA approval is really not going to be justified when we're talking about uh, autologous. Um, you know, again, simply based on those differences between uh, the, the autologous treatment and uh, what you would normally see from a, um, uh, excuse me, from, a, from an approved product where, again, everything is the same. And so a lot of this confusion has been baked in from the beginning, um, and, but the doctors are able to work within these regulatory exemptions that are out there. But for the most part, uh, for the most part, uh, there's some progress being made. The, the insurance companies and the, you know, the federal system is not really going to be reimbursing uh, without that stamp of approval that they want to see. And I think that's super important because, you know, look, you, you and I, we just crossed paths in, in two great meetings, you know, Donnie Buford's course, the IOF, International Orthobiologics Foundation. And then we were just at, at Toby with Steve Sampson. And you see these eager beaver, beaver you know, you know, orthobiologic specialists from all over the world who just have really incredible data that show when you really get this down and you standardize it as best as you can, you know, the outcomes can really be quite impressive. But I look at them all and I say, I get all of this, guys, and you're getting some great data here, but I don't think it's, until the cows come home, you're going to wind up getting Medicare and commercial payers to pay for this because you're just not going through that process that's required for an FDA-regulated indication. So I feel bad right. for them, but I know it works. Right. It's crazy. Right, right. Well, you know, there's, a, there's still a lot of education that needs to happen. 
and um, it, 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 both on the on the physician side and on the payor side. Um, I think on the physician side, one of the things that we need to be focusing on is what exactly is it that we're saying about these procedures? And if 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 you come out and you say, well, this this procedure, this PRP procedure is going to heal your osteoarthritis or whatever it is, it's just not, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. But when we start, I think, honing in on how these procedures um, are being used most successfully, and by, from what I can tell the doctors who really know what they're doing, they're, 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 we, we are finding the middle ground between complex surgeries on the one side and physical therapy on the other. There's a lot of space between those two types of procedures. And there is room in there for other types uh, of products and procedures to step in. And so I think the, the, the further we go, and the more that the evidence is developed, um, that it's not just, we're not just healing something. We are, you know, we're allowing patients to avoid complex surgeries for a period of time. We're getting the data for how often they are going to need to have these procedures. We're developing a better understanding of the costs that are going to be involved, um, both for both for the payer, uh, the patient, et cetera, and, and not necessarily trying to market ourselves the way that these FDA-approved drugs are. When we're more specific and precise in terms of the claims that were being made on the one hand, and the education is getting to the payers on the other, that these regulatory exemptions are legitimate and that we should be treating these procedures like surgeries rather than like the manufacturing of a product for reimbursement purposes. We start bringing those two sides closer together because you wouldn't say the same thing about a, about a bypass surgery. What happens in a bypass surgery? We're taking one part of the body, we're putting it in another, the data has been developed, but the, the bypass surgery or the vein that's used, that's not an FDA approved product, but there's no question that there's reimbursement there. But it's the, it's the time that, 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 that we've had between when these procedures were developed and now that gives the, 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 the payers more comfort that this, that this procedure was necessary. But again, right now, there's just this, there's this huge chasm between the complex surgery, which has high morbidity rate, comorbidity rates, and, and it has uh, a, a lot of expense associated uh, with it, and then doing nothing or just getting physical therapy on the one side, which, which may not work at all. There's yeah, much I more room here for these types of procedures to enter the picture, you know, assuming that they can be uh, assuming that the claims that they're making are, are, are true and substantiated. Yeah. You know, look, there's a few things that come to mind. First and foremost, you know, commercial payers in Medicare don't have enough money in there. Well, at least CMS doesn't want to pay for anything else. <laughs> you know, they're looking to, to pay less for less things. Commercial payers, they're thinking the same way. We're not going to add more procedures and more CPT codes and more stuff we got to pay for. And, and it doesn't make sense, especially if you can prove 
that you might be able to avoid surgery for some patients and et cetera, and lower overall costs. But I do think, for example, the, self, the self-insured world, I think there's going to be a push there, right? The large, the large corporations of the world recognize that they don't want their patients or their employees out of work for surgery for months and months. You can get this sort of a procedure. We can demonstrate that the outcomes are good. And so therefore, that's something that they might be willing to pay for. I think in, in, in particular, I don't see anytime soon that, that PRP or BMAC is going to be paid for with the CPT code. I just don't see it happening. I think the big pharma is where this is going to wind up eventually going. I think that if you take a look inside PRP or inside BMAC, you know, these are shotgun pellets that we're doing right now. There's a whole ton of stuff that we're throwing at this thing. But, you know, there's companies like GID Bio, you know, who are using stromal, you know, vascular uh, filtration or whatever it is. I'm terrible with that stuff. I should be better. But the point being, they're going to identify the molecule, the chemical, the signal mediator, the the growth factor. That's the one that does what it's supposed to. And then they're going to manufacture the bullet, if you will. But that's like, then you got to go through, right, the the PMA, the pre pre market approval. You got to go through randomized controlled trials which can cost $10 million a piece, tremendous amount of you know, expense to get there. But I think eventually we're going to identify what those orthobiologic things are. They will become part of what we do, but I think it's a long run. But the good news is for someone like yourself, you've got a lot of work to do. You're going to yeah. have a lot of people yeah. calling you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, I mean, there's, this is, this is going to be around for uh, a long time. And even though we've been at it for the last 15 years or so, I mean, this is still very early on as far as the overall history uh, is concerned. And um, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be involved. And um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be, you know, changes for uh, the better as we go down the road. Because, I mean, you're right to, to, to talk about reimbursement. It's a critical subject because, you know, right now, for the most part uh, in the United States, um, you know, you, you gotta be, you gotta have cash in pocket to be able to afford these procedures. And if you don't, you're sort of left with the, 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 the legacy options that are out there, which again is, you know, a, a complex surgery that nobody wants to have or just nothing, just suffering in silence. And, um, I, you know, I think, I think that's where these procedures, um, you know, create the most, uh, potential for disruption. And that's really creating more of a middle ground, more of a third option, um, you know, for, 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 for patients. Yeah. You know, and, and like anything else, you know, you know, I'm in the laser business and, and I mean, there's always laggards and there's naysayers and, you know, it hasn't been taught to me in my residency. It wasn't taught to me on my medical school curriculum. Right. And so therefore it can't be true. And just because you show me one RCT, I can show you another RCT, but then you got the Don Buforts of the world that read these, these studies carefully and they can show you the differences and say, that's why this one didn't work. And this one did. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, so for our orthopedic surgeon listeners out there, I think some of the things that you can do, which are really important is number one, be transparent. Make sure you're talking to your patients about, you know, why you're consenting them for this, base it on the literature, uh, make sure you're doing appropriate claims, right? You can't sit there and tell someone your arthritis is going to be cured. And then if you're going to get patient testimonials, you can't have someone sit there and say, I had PRP and my knee osteoarthritis went away and I climbed Kilimanjaro last week. Right, I mean, right. Right? So those are not right. things that you could do. Right, and, right. And then it, and it worries me because there's, it's still the wild, wild west. I mean, I was in a cab coming back. I was going to Vegas to a conference and I'm in there with a the cab driver. She's like, oh, you must be one of those orthopedic surgeons because I can see you're all here. She's like, I just got 
stem cells for both of my knees and I'm feeling really good. I'm like, I'm like, do you mind if I ask, you know, how much you paid for them? She's like, oh yeah, it was $5,000 a knee. And I took out a home equity loan and I'm just like sinking in the, in the chair in the back of the taxi. And it's like, but that happens, you know, you go to these meetings, Andrew, and we see these worldwide, you know, thought leaders and the remarkable work that they're doing. And as many as those that there are, there's probably twice as many that are doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing in testable. So the, I mean, the allogeneic products, and I'm imagining that's what the taxi driver had. Explain it to Judy. What's what's an allogeneic product? Okay. Okay. So an allogeneic product, think of stem cells in a bottle. And for the most part, these are products that are derived from donated birth tissue. Uh, You know, the hospital donates the birth tissue to different types of companies that purchase it. And then, you know, they they make products for for customers who themselves are product distributors. And, you know, I can open open up a business tomorrow called Andrew Stem Cells. I get a contract, uh, you know, with the hospital or with the company that they're donating the, the, the birth tissue to. And there's very there's very little um, barrier to entry there for me. And I can be in business tomorrow, selling to chiropractors, selling to all sorts of different doctors, making all sorts of claims that I'm not allowed to make, et cetera. But you know, for the most part, everyone else is, is asleep at the switch. The, the physicians and the chiropractors who are buying this stuff and injecting it into their patients blindly, um, you know, they're, they're not the ones who are going to uh, those conferences and, and, and getting educated on what these things are and uh, what the risks are. And, and there are real risks. And, and that, you know, we, talk, we talked earlier in the conversation about stem cells. That is really the way that the term stem cell has been, um, you know, so tainted to the point of disrepair over the years by these doctors, or excuse me, by these companies who are manufacturing these quote unquote stem cell products that every single study has shown doesn't have any stem cells in them. Um, and they, they're selling it to the chiropractors or the other physicians, and they're selling it as stem cell products. And patients really go to them with hope that this is going to work for me. And they believe these people at their word as they should and as they have the right to. Um, but over time, the, you know, there's been just so many uh, bad cases involving those types of products and people getting legitimately hurt. Yeah. Um, it, 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 so where's so where's the FDA, Andrew? Why are they now? I know that the FDA is not a police force, right? They don't have security people that can go knock on doors and stuff. But they do. The, okay. They so, do. So, so where's the F? I mean, I know that we see this stuff, but there's just why is it still out there? I don't get it. After um, after uh, the. There was litigation between regenerative sciences and uh, the FDA way back in the day, 2008 to 2012 or so. And um, at that point, the FDA was really asserting its authority to be able to regulate in this space, even though you know, they're, 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 the jurisdiction that they had was questionable and still is questionable, um, although it's been endorsed by the courts and you know, we really can't can't question it in, in, in a true sense that way. But Scott, Scott Gottlieb, who was the first commissioner of the FDA um, during the Trump administration, back then wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, which is that time and time again, we see FDA um, assert its jurisdiction into places where, you know, th- there's real questions about uh, the value that that will bring. 
And then they turn around or, or and questions about the value that that will bring and, and questions about whether they've got the jurisdiction to do so in the first place. And then they, they have this huge assignment that they took on themselves. And you see them going back to Congress saying, hey, listen, we've got to regulate all this, all this other stuff over here. We need more money to, to do that. And so FDA has sort of been caught in this cycle, particularly in this instance, in this industry, where it has taken on so much authority to regulate allogeneic, autologous places that are, you know, in, in a lot of instances have traditionally been left to the states to regulate. And now it's sort of, it's it, it stuck with this huge assignment that it took on and it, it hasn't been properly delegating those, those regulatory assignments to the individual states. And so there's, again, there's this, been this regulatory chasm for years that has only recently started to be filled in by some of the state attorney generals who have been bringing some of these cases against the product manufacturers and the physicians who use them. But that that is a very recent development after um, a, a long time where the states were, were nowhere to be found. So hopefully we'll be seeing more of that um, in terms of the, a more robust partnership between FDA and, and the states. But um, you, you, you're right in the sense, where is the FDA? I mean, they can only do so much. Um, I think a big problem that they had also over the last couple of years is that the head of uh, CBER, which is the office within FDA that regulates biologics, in 2020, he became the vaccine czar because vaccines are regulated in that same office of the FDA. And so all of a sudden their attention is turned all the way over here. And they can only do so much with the resources that they have, which again is one of the one of the shames or one of the problems when agencies take on, when they bite off more than they can chew uh, in a regulatory sense, rather than bringing on the industry, rather than bringing on the states to say, help us carry this load. Yeah, there was just an FDA consumer alert that went out not too long ago, you know, really trying to emphasize to patients as well about all of this. And, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's a group of, of, of really important people like yourself and Scott Bruder and a, a team of people that are out there that are really trying to educate physicians. We also have to educate our patients, you know, to say, look, this is legit. This isn't, you know, make sure you're really doing so in that, in that frame, you know, you know, again, Judy's listening here. We have a lot of listeners that are interested in orthobiologics. How, what would you describe? How would you tell them to go about finding someone that's reputable that you think is going to follow the code of taking good care of patients that want to get these types of products? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gotta be market research the same way, you buy anything else, I guess, uh, online. I, you know, I'm typically if I if I want something, whether it's whatever it's going to be, I'm going to look at the different options that are out there. I'm going to read the reviews. I'm going to, you know, see in, in this instance, see what sort of literature they've published. Um, you know, pay attention rather than just Google stem cells and and go to the first guy who who popped up. Um, in the in the practice of medicine, I mean, it's it's easy to fall into the trap where you know the the, the guy who is uh, the first option who pops up on Google or the one who's making the loudest noise or the most you know the, the most outlandish claims, he's gonna he'll get the the first patient and the patient's gonna have a lousy experience with him and then that patient's never gonna get a quote unquote stem cell procedure again because I've done that already and it didn't work even though it turns out that the doctor 
didn't know what the heck he was doing. But I, you know, I want somebody who has a track record. I want someone who's been around for a while. I want someone who has published peer-reviewed literature. I want someone who publishes his data in a way that I can understand. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's like, I want, I want someone who, who is going to tell me something that as desperate as I am to be told what I want to be told, um, I want somebody who's going to level with me and say, this is what I think we can do. And this is how I know that. And I can point to data that I've developed over the years to say, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you this is a slam dunk, but, you know, I, I, I feel strongly based on these hundreds or thousands of other patients that I've treated and written about that we can make some improvements for you. But if you've gone, if you've suffered with a complex condition for a long time and you've gone to traditional physicians and they're looking at you and they don't have any answers, if someone else comes along with a product or a procedure that you've never heard about before and they tell you, yeah, we're going to, we're going to knock this out right away. And you're just going to have to trust me on that. Go in the other direction. So I think we could say one thing that seems kind of, kind of clear, stay away from the doctors that are taking stuff out of bottles or out, out of packages. Right. I think that it has to come out of you. So that's a, a pretty straightforward, you know, easy thing to consider when you're going and talking to doctors about these types of things. And he says to you, I'm going to take it from your pelvis. I'm going to remove some of your fat. I'm going to take some of your blood. If it's coming from you, and then that procedure can be performed pretty much at the same time, then you're really in, in probably in the right space of, of the type of thing that you're looking for. And, you know, I would just sort of, as we head out here, you know, Andrew say that, again, I want to reiterate I think that transparency, appropriate claims and testimonials for our physician listeners out there could not be more important, especially on your website. Don't yeah. be putting out false claims on your website. The FDA will come knocking on your door. If not the FDA, maybe it's now going to be your attorney general in your state, as you, right. as you claimed, I think, which is a great thing to hear as well. Uh, but, you know, it's awesome. Listen, Andrew, you know, I, I always appreciate I love listening to you and, and the group up there. I always learn every time. I always make sure I'm at your sessions. We really can't thank you enough for taking the time to educate our listeners here on what I think is really one of the most important things in orthopedics at this time. So can't thank you enough for joining us. Thanks again for having me, Scott. It was a pleasure. And my pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time. 